or what we do in our evening services, as you're well aware, is we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a book of the Bible, and we've been doing Acts this year, and uh, I've been really enjoying it. Um, we are on track to, to finish in about 18 months, I think. Uh, don't laugh too much. <laughs> uh, some churches go much slower, <laughs> trust me. Uh, we, we're actually moving pretty quickly through some of them. Uh, but one of the things is that this is what's called you know, expositional preaching. We go through a passage because we come with the assumption that God wants to speak that God has written his word for a reason, that this is his revelation to us, it's his revealing of himself, and that he wants to keep doing that. And so it's, we open up the word and we expect that the, the, the power that lies behind the word, which is actually Jesus himself, is going to speak to us. And we believe that that's more than simply uh, download a, a fact sheet, you know, make it through the curriculum from Genesis to, to Revelation. Uh, we believe that there is a moment-by-moment -moment application that God wants to bring that the voice of, of God wants to bring to our context. And so this, we, we absolutely believe that preaching is a prophetic activity in that sense. It's bringing God's word, not just in its uh, eternal nature and, and uh, truth, but also moment by moment, what are the needs that need to be addressed here in this particular moment in time. And that's why you know, if, if we were to pick up the same passage and, and have a different message in a couple of years' time, they should not be the same message. Uh, you, you know, you see some places that do that. You, you, you find the same preacher. I, I've, I watch sermons as I prepare, and I found the same preacher give, gave the same sermon 15 years apart on the same passage, and I just thought, okay. Um, I mean, as, as though you could, if that was all we had to do, right, if, if there was one message from one passage at all times, then we would just be able to preach all the way through the Bible and just tick it off, completed Christianity. It's done it, all right, Lord Jesus, take me now. We're, uh, we're all good. But no, we believe that God has moment by moment uh, things that he wants to meet us with and, and to address in our lives. And so this is uh, expositional preaching, but with a, a prophetic view, because that's what we believe is happening. And as a church, we are committed to the identity of spirit and truth. And we're told uh, in John's gospel that the Lord is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and uh, the reality is that most places basically find somewhere that they're, they're happy with, somewhere that they're comfortable with, and we'll call that spirit and truth. And, you know, we, we're probably the same, if we're being honest. But we believe that there's this tension, and it, sometimes it seems like, you know, genuinely pursuing the spirit and genuinely resting upon the truth don't coexist happily or, or, or neatly. There's, there's, you're constantly being pulled one way or the other. And so what we find is that we have to, you know, wrestle ourselves to one side or the other, depending on uh, you know, where we are. And so, as, a, as an evening service coming up, we are going to be starting a series in Acts chapter 8 and 9, uh, which we're just calling Holy Spirit. Because if you read through those couple of chapters, uh, it's very evident that the Holy Spirit is you know, doing some amazing things. So basically what I'm saying is that we, we're going to make good on that identity over the next couple of weeks. We're very much a, a truth-based gathering here. You know, we stick to, to the Word of God, uh, but we're going to start making good on that identity that we are spirit and truth. So please uh, come along for that Holy Spirit series. I'm really looking forward to what God is going to do uh, during that time. Okay, so Acts chapter 7. Yes, 7 uh, into 8 we are at today. So if you've got a Bible, would you open it, please, to Acts chapter 7 at the end 
beginning in verse 54. And we've just had Stephen finish his sermon. You'll be relieved to hear that Stephen's sermon has finally uh, come to an end. And uh, it's, a, it's a very great warning for preachers because it is the longest sermon that's ever recorded in the book of Acts, and the result was that the preacher got stoned. So <laughs> a good warning to us. Uh, I'm not giving you any ideas here, right? Uh, well, actually, there are, I believe there are sermons that are longer, but they're just not recorded, right? Uh, uh, Paul preaches this one sermon, and it went on for so long, it says that he went all the way into the, into the night, and there was this guy who was sitting in the window. Uh, his name was Eutychus, and, uh, which ironically means lucky, uh, good luck. And uh, he fell out of the window and died because the sermon was so long. Um, so there are longer sermons. Anyway, it's all right. Paul went down and raised him from the dead, so just casually. We're looking forward to getting to that moment in our walk through the book of Acts. Okay, so Acts chapter 7, verse 54. And we are in a moment where we are transitioning to sort of the next major portion of the narrative. So a part of, of chapter 8 is going to be this transition to focusing the spotlight on this main character, whose name is Saul, who later gets changed to Paul. You'll know him by that name, the Apostle Paul. So we get a glimpse at him today. So Acts chapter 7, verse 54. We're going to separate our um, passage into three scenes tonight. The first one is the stoning. The second one is the persecution. And the third one is the opportunity. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, they being the religious leaders whom Stephen was preaching to. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He did not read the crowd very well to make that kind of statement. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Have you noticed that? It's a loud voice. It wasn't done under his breath. A loud voice. Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I find this to be a very interesting passage because one of the features of it is that it uses something called juxtaposition, which is familiar. I've come from being an English teacher, so if you cast your mind back to your uh, English Education, which was for most of you quite reluctant. I understand that. Um, a juxtaposition is when you put two things next to each other in order to contrast the properties and therefore highlight differing uh, properties. So if I was to have a, a, a little yellow ball here and I could juxtapose it with a big yellow ball and you would say, wow, that ball's really small. Or if I was to ju juxtapose it with a, a, a brown ball, you would say, wow, that ball's really yellow. That's the, the, the point of juxtaposition. And so here you've, you've, you've kind of got these juxtaposed narratives running alongside each other, contrasting each other, and they both create a, a totally different tone in what's going on. And sorry for all the English 
teachers speak, right? That's just how I read this stuff. And, it, and it's fascinating because on the one hand, you have this awful, ugly narrative, this dark narrative of uh, the religious leaders and what's going on there. And then on the other hand, you have just this incredibly you know, peaceful and grace-filled narrative of Stephen. And they're both in the same moment. They're both happening at exactly the same time. You know, the Jewish leaders, it says that when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I mean, that's, we're talking about a kind of an involuntary response of, of wrath here. And stoning was not a very nice way to die. If I have to uh, explain that it's the way that they would do it in the, in the Jewish law is that the first thing that they would do, they, they, they actually didn't like doing it, by the way. They didn't like stoning because of how brutal and how ugly it was a way to execute judgment. And so the way that the, the Jewish instructions lay out to do it is that you, you put them up on a height that must be at least two times the height of that person, and then one of the witnesses has to push that person off that height face first. And if you were in that position, uh, you, would, you would hope that your head hits the ground first and hope that that finishes the job because that would be it. And if that didn't work, then they would take a large stone and drop it onto your chest from that same height. And then if that didn't fit, then they resort to stones. Not a very nice way to die. And so you have this, this narrative that comes from the, the Jewish leaders that they hear what Stephen has said, and they say they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They literally, hands on their ears, closing them off, and they rushed together at him. And I mean, th that kind of behavior is, is something that you could potentially un understand in, in a child who's, who's sort of unable to regulate their emotions, but literally screaming, hands on their ears, rushing at him. These were meant to be dignified, intellectual, almost pseudo-political religious leaders who have just resorted in that moment to some incredibly base, violent act. And when we see that sort of thing being perpetrated by these men who were meant to be at the, at the top of respect in that society, there's, there's something abhorrent. There's, there's something evil and, and, and all, it's quite ugly to see them doing something in that way. And the truth of it is that it's actually a stage upon which the black sinfulness of humanity takes the central role. And we see it come out in this, in this moment of wrath as, as the red mist covers the, the eyes of these Pharisees and these religious leaders and they just cannot help but be overcome with this disgust and this revenge, this vengeance that they take against Stephen. It is an absolutely brutal lynching and then as is the custom in, in Jewish justice of, of that kind is that they stripped his body of his clothes and they left his body inglorious in and bloodied outside the city and they took his clothes and it says that they simply laid it at the feet of a man named Saul and we're told that Saul simply approved of his execution. And we're talking tonight about the fact that God is moving in the mess. God is moving in the mess. You see, this kind of thing, this sort of overt, this ugly, this, this terrible 
view of the sinfulness of humanity is very much hidden from us in, in our neat society. We've pushed it to places that we don't have to see when you're walking down the street or when you're perusing your grocery aisle. You don't have to witness things like this, but make no mistake, they still happen. And although we don't see anything like that in our country, don't be deceived that deaths like this are happening this very day for people who believe in Jesus in countries where it's not safe to do so. Because the sinfulness of humanity at large, the humanity that doesn't know Christ, the humanity that's continuing to reject God is still there under the surface. And we might have pushed it away so that we can make ourselves feel good about what the world looks like without Christ. But the truth is that behind every court case, every police incident, every funeral is a story of brokenness, is a story of mess where human sinfulness has got us all into a situation that we can't solve, that we can't get ourselves out of. And all of us, every single one, has been touched in some way by a story of brokenness. And in fact, in our, in our country, in our context, often it's behind closed doors, often it's in the family home, often it's sitting deep and hidden within our soul, a memory that we refuse to acknowledge or talk about. Whether that's of family falling apart or of relationships breaking down or of secret destructive habits or of hidden abuse, there is mess in our lives and much of it is actually beyond our ability to get out of. We can't bring order to it. But, but remember, there are two parallel narratives happening here. There's this juxtaposition between the sinfulness displayed and humanity. Humanity is giving its worst at this moment. Similar to the way that humanity gave its worst when it put Jesus upon the cross. And yet, right alongside is this other story, this other narrative of Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man who is in relationship with God, a man who has God's presence upon him. And his story is totally different. Do you understand? They're happening at the same time, but his story is totally different. You know, the ancient Greeks had a, a saying about a, a beautiful death. If you go back to the roots of ancient Greek culture, it was a culture built on heroes, and they were heroes of battle, heroes of, of war. You go to Homer's epic poems, and these heroes that engage in these battles are constantly looking for something called a beautiful death, where they're able to, to end in a, in a flash of glory, and so they'll be remembered. And in particular, the a group, the city-state of Sparta, was known for this kind of culture uh, to the point where the women had a saying that they would say to the men, to their husbands and their sons, and, and if they were lucky enough, their fathers, as, their, as the men went off to, to war, is they would say, uh, in Greek, they would say, etan e epitas, which is a very short way of saying, with it or on it. That was the parting words that a woman would give to her, her family member as they went off to war, with it or on it, and they were referring to their shield. They were saying that when you come back, it's, it's going to be in one of two ways, with your shield, because you've won, 
and you've proven your courage and, and your bravery and you've, you've dealt with the enemy and you've come back with your uh, comrades or on it. In which case, your comrades have brought you back on your shield as a, as a fallen hero. And the reason for that was that if you were a coward and you decided to turn and run, the first thing that you're ditching is that heavy round shield because it's slowing you down from getting away. And so they were constantly in search for this beautiful death. But did you know that no beautiful death of that nature can compare to the death of a martyr? Stephen is known as the first martyr of the church. And anyone can die in, in glorious and, and heroic and, I don't know, violent circumstances. But it is a power beyond the person, beyond the human, that can die in that setting in a way that shows the peace and the glory of God. In a way that knows that actually in my death I'm overcoming what's going on and I'm going to be with my Saviour. And so that's what we have in the death of Stephen. There is such a grace and a peace in how his death is described. You know, the other incredible things about Stephen's death is in, in how many ways it mirrors the death of Jesus. That even in his final act of obedience, Stephen becomes more like his saviour. And we've talked about that, that our, our job, our function as, as Christians, what it actually means to be a Christian, means to be growing in your likeness towards Jesus. It means to be walking in closer relationship, which means that you look like Christ. Christian that word means a little Christ. They're people who are just obsessed with Jesus to the point where they, they emulate him. And I mean, the, the theological truth of that is a, a little bit more subtle. It, it's actually your identity is caught up in Christ, which means that you only become the true you when you've realized who you are in Christ. And that's a unique identity. That's just yours, but it's also in Christ. And it's unified with everybody else in the body of Christ. And so Stephen, in his final act of obedience, becomes more and more like Christ. Because as they were killing him, he says that he sees the, the heavens opened. And uh, even in similar manner, he's witnessing to them about how they've rejected God and then they decide to, to crucify him. And then as he's dying, he even cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he even gets to utter words of forgiveness in that moment that he's dying. Now, we should notice that when he says uh, in verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There is a difference because what did Jesus say when he died? He says, Father, to you I entrust my spirit. But Stephen's words say that he entrusts his spirit to the Lord Jesus. Why is that significant? Because the major point of the gospel message that they are trying to get across to the Jews is that actually this person, Jesus, this name is above every other name. This name is on the same level, which is what Jesus was saying. It's what God Jesus, got Jesus killed saying that he was equal with the Father. And so in that very early moment in the history of church, we can see that anyone who really has the Holy Spirit living inside of them has got that sorted out. They know that Jesus is Lord, that it's him who's up there in heaven on the throne, that he's the one who is appointed as the judge of all things, that his name has been lifted high above every other name. 
And you know, a lot of people struggle when they think about coming to faith and, and sort of, you know, testing different religions. It's like, why is it, why does it have to be Jesus? Why does it have to be that particular name? Why does it have to be this particular message? Why does it have to be a cross? Why can't God just be happy that I'm open to religion, that I'm open to, you know, being obedient to, to or, you know, being entertaining the thought of this divine person? Why can't God be happy that I'm religiously inclined? Why does it have to be this name, Jesus? You know, the reason is that when you die, you do not entrust your spirit to anything other than the creator of your soul. You cannot. You don't entrust your spirit to some universal energy or, or primary principle. You entrust it to somebody who has a name because that name died for you and that name purchased your forgiveness. And it is faith in that name that saves you. And so Stephen understands very well that at his moment of death, he is entrusting himself to the Lord Jesus. You know, ultimately, Stephen is killed for confessing that the name of Jesus is above every other name. And we should also notice in verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And did you know that this is the only moment when Jesus is depicted in heaven as standing? Every other description of Jesus in his ascended state is that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the, the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that he finished his work of the purification of sins and he sat down because a sitting posture is, is the posture of somebody who's completed their work. And so the implication is that Jesus doesn't need to be crucified again. No more offering for sins need to happen. We don't need to work for our salvation because the work has been done. Jesus is sitting down. And so why is it at this moment, and at this moment seemingly only, Jesus is standing? And we could speculate many things about that, but I believe that it's similar to the moment when you are totally invested in something that you're watching. You have such an emotional investment in what's going on, like if you're... Uh, you know, watching your favorite sporting team on the TV, or if you're at a stadium and you get to this moment where suddenly you look around and everybody's standing up because of the, the energy of, of the moment or whatever's happening, or if you're, you know, watching your kid on a sporting... They're all sporting analogies, I'm sorry. It shows you what's, uh, what my values are. When you're so emotionally invested in what's going on that you cannot help but stand up, and I think that at this moment, Jesus is standing from his throne, he's peering out of heaven and he's seeing his faithful servant, Stephen, go through the exact same thing that he went through, minus the nails on the cross. And he's saying that this is my faithful servant. And that at that moment, out of his compassion and out of his solidarity with Stephen, Jesus got up and he looked at him. And that he was ready for the moment when Stephen said, Lord Jesus, to you I entrust my spirit. Jesus was already there, ready to pull him up to heaven. And you see, there are these two narratives that are happening. The world can get pretty ugly. It can get pretty messy. Our lives can get pretty messy. There is stuff that people are going through here that is deep and that is difficult but at the same time, God is working something beautiful. 
God is. He is working something beautiful. And he is right there in the mess. And if you haven't been able to see what the beautiful thing God working is, then you just haven't lived long enough yet. You will see it. But what's required in this moment is faith, is trust that God is working it and that it is going to turn out for your good. And you know the other thing is that in your suffering, Jesus is not standing, or Jesus is not in heaven as a bronze wall, indifferent to what's going on, saying, cool it, it'll work out. Jesus is right there with you, invested in what's going on. You know, there, is, there are so many profound verses in Scripture, but there is one that stands out at this moment, and that is the, the shortest verse in the New Testament, which says that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was weeping over his friend who had passed away, and that is because Jesus knows and he feels and he sympathizes with his people. And so if you're in the mess at the moment, Jesus is sitting right next to you, weeping with you. He cares about the mess that you are going through. Cling to him. Cling to him. There are some people who need to hear that tonight. Jesus hasn't left you. He's not indifferent to your suffering. He's not saying you deserve it and you just need to make it through and then you'll be okay. He's saying that this, this is not okay. I am using this mess right now and I'm right here with you. You know, this is, this is the beauty that God can work in the mess of our lives. And so we need to understand that there are these two narrative ha- narratives happening, and it doesn't matter how the world looks, it doesn't matter what the apparent meaning of the situation is, there's always something that God is doing, and it is always good, and it is always beautiful. And we need to be able to trust that that is what is going on. He often uses ugly means. Can I say that without sounding heretical? God uses mess because mess is what we've offered And that hasn't put him off. And it hasn't taken his power. And it hasn't stopped his purpose. I'm not very far through my message. But we've got some things that we need to to say. Stephen is is the first martyr of the church. And you know what the word martyr means? Is Is a short Greek lesson for you. It comes from the Greek word marturos, which means a witness. And so it's a legal term that if you were in a court and you were called to testify as to the truth of a particular thing, you were called a marturos. And what is it that Jesus called his people? The last thing that he said as he left is he gave them the Great Commission. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my marturoi. And Stephen, in this moment right now, is actually fulfilling that commission that Jesus had given to them. You see, our English word martyr, somebody who dies for their faith, dies for their religion, is actually an an acknowledgement that this particular type of death is one that acts as a witness in the human public court of truth as to what is right and what is true. Because If this message about Jesus and the gospel was not true, no one would be dying for it. No one would be dying for it. But history is littered with people who are taken to this point 
and told to, to be quiet or not to speak or, or told that they were wrong and they said, I will die for this. So being a witness is about being, able, being willing to take it even to that end. Well, let's get to the next section, chapter 8. From verse 1, it says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Things look messy. Things look pretty messy, right? At that moment in time, a great persecution comes against the church, you know, largely due to, to Saul, but you know, lots of other things that were going on. And we shouldn't be surprised at this persecution on one hand because the message that they were bringing was basically telling the Jews, you who think you were the promised people of God, who have the promises of God, well, we're taking that away from you because you've rejected it. And we're giving it to the Gentiles, which is the word for anyone who's not a Jew. We're taking it to the rest of the world because you've rejected this good news. And so we shouldn't be surprised that as this wrestle is, is happening, that the, the Jewish people who are largely responsible for the early persecution are getting pretty upset. And Saul is actually persecuting these people out of his religious fervor. But in the other sense, we shouldn't be surprised at this because there is something about the human heart that rejects the gospel. There is something about the human heart that rejects the gospel for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because of the diagnosis that the gospel presents, that actually there's something wrong. It's like that Taylor Swift song. Hey, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. Clearly lost on, on this crowd here. So there are probably two people who are... Anyway, who's Taylor Swift? I saw, I saw somebody post a, a picture or a, like a video of, of her performing and... It's just this enormous crowd of people in the stadium singing her song, and then it pans to outside the stadium, and there's an even bigger crowd outside of the stadium who are just packed there and singing along. And somebody was like, Taylor Swift could become the president. She's, you know, people would, would vote for that. Who is Taylor Swift? Goodness. <laughs> the human heart rejects the diagnosis that we are actually, in fact, the problem and that we need a solution. But secondly, the human heart rejects the gospel message because of the answer. <laughs> which is that actually you can't, you can't do it on your own. You need grace. You need God to do it for you. There's an, a part deep inside of us that says, no, I want to earn it. I, I want to I be responsible for my own salvation. And, and grace doesn't work like that. You know, it's as though we, we're coming to God and we're saying, you know, I've been the best person that I can be. Here's my resume. And then God says, I don't want your resume. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to add a couple of points. I'm not trying to give you a few key performance indicators to meet and then I'll let you in. He's saying, your, your resume is not going to do it. I want to give you a better one. And he gives us the resume of Jesus. That's what it means to be clothed in righteousness, is that our filthy deeds are put off and that Jesus' righteousness becomes our identity, becomes our identity. Your new identity is that you're a new creation, righteous, made by the righteousness of Jesus. You didn't earn it. You don't have to. And Paul had to write the book of Galatians to a church that had, had, had thought that, well, well okay, yeah, no, we, we were saved by grace, but now we've got to continue in works. And Paul's like, no, no, it's not. You live out of the outflow of the grace that's been given to you and the righteousness that's been given to you as a free gift. The next section, uh, cha uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so you had this narrative of mess, this narrative of there's persecution, people are getting thrown into prison, uh, more people are probably dying for this faith, though we're not told explicitly in that uh, section, and yet the people are scattered. And what do they do as they scatter? They go about preaching the word. And then we get this story, it zooms in on, on Philip, and we see his uh, dealings in the, the place of Samaria. And it's very clear that actually Stephen's death is kind of the launch pad into the gospel finally breaking out of Jerusalem. Because we've said that it was sort of like bubbling and frothing and, and, and popping and wanting to get out of Jerusalem, but the messengers were unwilling to go. And so things had to get uncomfortable before that message had a clear path and clear opportunity out of Jerusalem. And it's interesting that we go to focus on the character of Philip. And Philip is another one of these people that were listed in the seven earlier, right? You remember in Acts uh, chapter 6, was it, where uh, there were seven people who were chosen to serve over a practical need. One of them was Stephen, and one of them was Philip. And I love that because, once again, it removes the excuses for you and me. Well, we don't have to be an apostle. We don't have to be some you know, super Christian. These guys were chosen for an administrative task in the church. They just said, yeah, okay, I'll take that on board. I'll look after the, the distribution of widows. And then God uses them because of their willingness and because of their character. And so we can put that excuse back on the shelf that we're not good enough or special enough or whatever it might be. God wants to use each and every one of us. Now, Philip is called the first evangelist, which I think is helpful in one sense because uh, it's good to know that evangelism started at that point, but it's unhelpful because we put him on this pedestal that's kind of unattainable for the average Christian. You know, he's an evangelist. Oh, oh wow, like look at him go and, and do that stuff. But the word evangelist is, is built upon the, the Greek word for gospel, all right? A euangelistes is somebody who uh, proclaims, which, you know, the verb for that is euangelizo, right? It's all the same word, and proclaims the gospel message, which is that euangelion, right? And, and euangelion, the you part is, means good, like eu, uh, euphoria or eulogy. They're good things, Right? Uh, and the angelos is angel, which means a, a messenger or a message. So the euangelion is the good news, the good message. It's the gospel message. So an evangelist is literally somebody who proclaims the gospel message. And I would add to that one statement that, in fact, it's somebody who has the gospel message inside them so much that it comes out. Because that's really the key to being an evangelist. It's, it's not committing to memory a bunch of things and having a bunch of tools that you can whip out. It's actually just loving the gospel, and it comes out of you when you speak with uh, other people. So Philip goes to this place called Samaria, and Samaria is a, a place we see in John chapter 4. Uh, Jesus comes to the woman at the well, and she's a Samaritan, and she says, you know, Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. You guys hate us. And there was basically a theological difference between them. The, the Samaritans were like, we don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem and worship, so we'll just worship at this local mountain. And the Jews were like, you can't do that. And so they hated each other as a result. And so Philip is going to somewhere where, by all intents and purposes, he should receive a hostile audience. They should look at him as a Jew and, and be like, no, 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 we don't have any dealings with you. 
You know, how many people have thought that about a group of people that they might want to witness to? No, they're not going to like me. They hate me. I'm very different to them. We don't, we don't get along. Has anyone, you know, put up that excuse? Well, Philip goes to the Samaritans, and instead of finding hostility, he actually finds an incredible openness. He says that they all listened to him of one, of one accord. Everybody who heard him was like, wow, this is exactly what we need. This is exactly what we need to hear. And that was obviously accompanied with all of these uh, signs and miracles as well. So Philip has incredible success in that moment. And you know, we fear in, in the sharing of the gospel, in the sharing of our life, of our Christian life, that's really what it is to be uh, evangelizing, is to just share, share your Christian life with someone. We fear rejection, and we fear hatred, or we fear failure, but we shouldn't fear any of those things. Because what you're engaging in is the work that can really only be done by the Holy Spirit. Okay, if somebody is coming to faith, if somebody is believing, if they're putting their faith and their trust in Jesus, that's not something that you do, that's something that the Holy Spirit does. Which means that you're not responsible for whether it works out or not. Is that, is that coming across? Like It's the Holy Spirit that does the work there, so you don't have to be worried that I'm going to stuff this up, or, or I'm going to make a mess of this, or, or I'm going to experience fear or, or rejection or anything like that. It's actually a work of the Holy Spirit as that happens. We've been talking in, in the staff room over the last couple of weeks about uh, some statistics which have been gathered about the Australian climate. And the reality is about the Australian climate is that our, our world is warm, but our feet are cold. Right? We're told that over 60% of Australia, that's a majority by the way, over 60% of Australia either still call themselves a Christian or are warm to the idea of Christianity. Does that surprise you? The majority of Australians are warm to the message of Jesus Christ. In fact, even more than that, it's, we are told that 83% of Australians would come to church if a friend invited them. 83%. And how many Christians invite someone to church? 2%. Four in every five people out there would come to church if a friend invited them, and one in 50 Christians will reach out a hand and invite someone to church. And these statistics have been absolutely destroying me across the last couple of weeks because I cannot understand why we are that way. Why is it that we feel so unconfident, so timid? Why is it that no one in the church believes that they have a responsibility or a part to play in bringing people to faith? You know, if I was to ask anyone here, if you know what your, your spiritual gifts are, if you've ever been in that conversation, who would say that one of their gifts is in evangelism? I won't ask you to put your hands up. I know that there's very few who would say that. And then the next question is, how many people have led someone to Christ? And again, I won't ask you to put your hands up because I know how low those responses are. And I don't say this to try and heap guilt on you. All right, please, hear this. I don't say that to heap guilt on anyone at all. 
I'm wanting to shine a spotlight on something that is not right. Something that is not right. Because would God really leave his church so ill-equipped to do the one thing that he asked us to do, to make disciples? When Jesus gave the Great Commission and he said, you will be my witnesses, he wasn't saying one in 50 of you is going to have a part to play in bringing people to faith. He was saying 100%, all of you are going to be my witnesses. And I've been absolutely wrecked by this statistic this week because the devil is winning a devastating battle in our hearts if he has convinced 98% of us that we don't have evangelistic gifts, that we have nothing to offer in bringing people to Christ, and that if our way of contributing to and witnessing to people is so insignificant that we can barely tell what we do to witness to people other than not swearing in our workplace. That as a status quo, I just don't believe is what God would do. I just don't believe it. Because God wants people to be coming to faith. And God wants to use us. And he said that we will all be witnesses. And so I'm not saying that you need to get your act together or that you need to you know, go out and do whatever, but I'm saying that you need to realize God has made you a witness There are gifts inside of you that God wants to use, and it is going to be far more than one in 50. I think that there are a number of things that can paralyze us, and we can can front up the excuse of fear as, as paralyzing us, but we read passages like this where fear is not fear of rejection, fear of ridicule, but it is fear of death. Is fear really our barrier? Or is it in fact comfort? Because comfort can paralyze us just as much as fear. And part of God moving in this mess was was him actually using that mess to make it so uncomfortable for people to stay in Jerusalem that they had to get out. We're nearing the end and the band can start coming up. But part of Stephen's message to this Jewish people was that they had made an idol out of the temple. They had restricted God's presence and God's activity to those four walls. And Stephen says that God never intended to dwell there. He never intended to be restricted to those four walls. And you know what? We might not have an altar and we might not have gold laid over any part of our building here. But make no mistake, if the only place that we talk about God, the only place we open our Bible, the only place that we pray is inside these four walls, then we have made an idol out of this building and we have restricted God's presence to a place he never intended to stay. And we need to be able to get over that. I hope that you're hearing my heart in this because I've always had a heart that that burns for the lost and to see lost people saved. And I I spent a lot of my formative years uh, in church under somebody who was a very gifted evangelist. But over the last week, my heart has not so much been breaking for them as it has been breaking for you. The fact that so many of us feel like we've got no part to play That's not right. That's not right. You do have a part to play. God has gifted you. God has called you to be a witness. God has given you opportunities to do things. 
And we've got to take that ground back from the enemy and say that we're not going to be stopped by the fear of rejection or of any of that, but we're going to be obedient to what God has called us to do, to what God has made us. God has made us witnesses. And so as I've been praying through this uh, message this week, I really feel it's necessary for us to, to have a moment here where we do what we see a lot of the time in the New Testament, and that is pray through the laying on of hands that people might receive the Holy Spirit and might receive a measure of the gifts that God has for them. And so what I'm going to ask is that as we come and as we respond to, uh, to God, as we worship, that if you want to receive or if you want to be awakened the gift of evangelism, then would you come forward? And we are going to pray that God would bring that anointing and that God would bring those gifts out of you. Because as a church, we want to be taking this message out. We want to be bringing people into the house of God and helping them to hear the message. And so if there's even a seed inside of you that burns for the lost, and yet you've never been confident enough, or you've never thought what opportunities you have, if there's a seed there, chances are God wants that to grow into something. So would you come? At any point in time that music's already playing, the prayer team is going to come out as well and we'll be here, Pat will be here, I'll be here, Liam will be up here. And we just want to pray that you'll receive that gift so you can make your way at any time. Why don't we all stand? And if you're not a Christian, if you need to put your, if you need to entrust your soul to Jesus, then would you come as well? Would you come as well?